2: is reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Uh, let, let me just uh, let me just change the music here. Let me just fade this in. Ah oui, mon chérie, mon chérie, Jeff. Ça va?
4: Ça va bien, merci. Et toi?
3: Uh, où est le gars, s'il vous plaît? Oh, dude, don't give me your O-level French, please. <laughs> did you do French to uh, to O-level standard? Uh, I did, yes. I got an A. Oh, look at you. I don't think I got an A, but it was, you know, GCSEs by the time I was of doing it. Of course it, yeah. it
4: was, because you a borderline millennial. <laughs> yeah.
3: Should yeah. we
4: explain why we're playing that music?
3: Yes, because Ed is in Paris. In Paris.
4: I am in Paris. Uh, and so we thought we would uh, take advantage of it uh, by displaying our brilliant. French skills. And how is Gay Paris? It's extremely nice and it's extremely sunny.
3: Can you paint a picture of where you are for us?
4: Uh, I am near the Sorbonne. I am staying in the 5th arrondissement. Um, So I'm near the site of the student protests of 1968, of which more later. No, it's it's extremely nice And I even went to a glamorous French party last night Did you really? A, a soiree, I imagine Well, you know, it's really strange I, I I met a guy on the street Who I knew from like 15 years ago And he invited me to this uh, party he was having And I met this chap, Armand Montebourg Who stood for the Socialist Party nomination In both 2012 and 2017 Anyway, he, I'm afraid he lost uh, both times He came third But uh, he he. I said, what are you doing now? And he said he is... Working in agriculture as a farmer. So, Jeff, just think, if I wasn't doing this, (laughs) I could be Farmer Miliband.
3: Did you not suggest that you should try a
4: podcast? as a a sort of as a kind of last ditch if the farming fails you mean he could become a a, a podcaster he told me how he's growing 50 million euros worth of almond trees which are going to be almonds better than California Armand's almonds actually I should have said that
3: to him well I'm feeling quite envious I mean you didn't invite me to go on uh, this uh, sojourn to Paris George Ezra's here but uh, sorry (laughs) (laughs) but I mean I've had a very uh, uneventful week because I've been full of a so i haven't got much to offer really even less well, it's quite it. good that i'm not there then sort of catching your lurgy i mean obviously i'm very sympathetic to your illness but uh
4: yep. i mean i'm hoping we're going to get the conclusion of the leisure center story this week
3: no i told <laughs> you uh after your facetiousness you will never know the end of that story but, but i've like been really well you. i've been really well behaved until the day you die i've been
4: really well behaved honestly we've had tens of emails saying please can we have the end of the leisure center story <laughs>
3: Maybe next week, we'll see. Maybe for the Christmas special. Maybe when you release your trampolining video, I'll give you the end of the Leisure Centre story. I
4: can see this is going to be like a running theme.
3: Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Because uh, our topic is protest, and it's inspired by Paris 1968.
4: Exactly. So it's 50 years this year since the famous Parisian protest of 1968, which nearly brought down the uh, government. Uh, And we thought... There's lots to talk about in relation to protest. Does it make a difference? How is modern protest different from protests of yesteryear? Uh, there's a film that's coming out, Mike Lee's film uh, about Peter Loo, which was a famous protest 200 years ago next year. This week, we saw a big Google uh, walkout from Google offices around their dealing with sexual harassment seems to have had an effect. So, you know, protest, does it make a difference?
3: And you've been in Paris, of course. I mean, you must have found lots of people there who would love to talk about Paris, nineteen sixty-eight. Yes, but uh,
4: the the person that we, the person that was the best person we could think of, turns out Agnès Poiret turns out to be in London. So you're, she's going to be in the studio with you. Jeff, 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 out, out, out. Jeff, 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 out, out,
3: out. I'm just getting into the sort of protest mentality. Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is is loosely related to uh, Paris of 1968, in that I'm very excited about the reissue of the album, The Beatles, colloquially known as The White Album.
4: Yes, which is, to, which is today. We're recording on Friday and it's today. Yeah. And you know, it ties in more than you might realise because John Harris, who's one of our guests talking about protests, because he's written about the, about Peterloo and its relevance to today, has written a piece in The Guardian uh, today all about The White Album and its relevant 50 years on from 1968.
3: Yeah, and he's also written, actually, an essay with the repackaged, reissued album. If you're a super fan like I am, you can get a version of this with a gajillion different discs. And uh, John Harris has contributed an essay on it. But, you know, just just from a musical point of view, having listened to it and having heard all the extras. I mean, if you are a fan of the Beatles or a fan of music, you were in for a treat. So that's my reason to be cheerful. What's yours? Well, mine is maybe predictably about the US midterm elections.
4: They're generally seen as a sort of mixed bag because the democrats took control of the house of representatives but donald trump made gains or the republican party made gains in the senate and so people sort of think it's mixed and it probably is mixed but just in the interests of some sort of optimism there's a very good piece by nate silver who is the sort of polling guru on his website 538.com which 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 sort of sets out in kind of much greater detail something that was my impression from the results on Tuesday night, which is if you look at the states that put Trump over the top in the electoral college to win, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, so the Midwest, the places which had been sort of left out economically, responded to the economic part of Trump's message, the Democrats made big gains there. So, you know, it's a sort of mixed bag in relation to 2018. But I think Obviously, the next election in the US is not in the bag at all, but I think there are reasons to think that the things that made it possible for Trump to sort of get through a kind of narrow path to electoral college victory uh, in 2016, maybe you're seeing a swing back in those places to the Democrats. And I think, you know, four years of Trump rather than eight, uh, I definitely think is a reason to be cheerful.
2: Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: And with me in my podcast attic is journalist Agnes Poirier. Uh, hello, Agnes. Hello. And there's a slight element of misconnections here because you're usually in Paris, uh, but today you're in London and Ed's in Paris, so we don't quite know how we ended up in this situation.
5: Call it British irony.
3: Yes, exactly. I thought we could start by asking you about 1968, sort of the background to it, what, what was going on in France at the time and how the protests began.
5: Well, if you look at exactly how the protests began, it began as a very French affair, because as you may recall, the male students of the Nautaire University, based just outside of Paris, wanted to have access to the female dormitory. Did you know that? I
3: didn't know that, no. I didn't know that either. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the bit that's often talked about.
5: Well, no, but I mean, in a way, it's quite symbolic as a shift, you know, in society. Uh, Don't forget that at the time, the legal age was not 18, but 21. And um, so they just wanted to be able to, um, you know, go freely to uh, visit their female friends. And, um, but... You know, it could have been probably another trigger, but it was this one. One thing led to another. And uh, you may remember the figure of Danny Conbendit, uh, Daniel Conbendit, um, Franco-German student. And it it was extremely uh, quick you know, succession of events and the Sorbonne being occupied and uh, all these demonstrations in the streets of Paris. And of course, the student movement uh, was joined by a much more important movement in in a way because one that paralysed the whole of France, that is to say, a general strike. This feeling that slowly uh, there was no petrol for people, you know, very quickly, people couldn't go about their day or couldn't use their car. And at the time, in the late 60s, you know, that completely paralysed uh, the country. Another detail, for instance, garbage wasn't collected anymore. And if you look at the pictures, you've got mountains of garbage in every single city and, of course, in Paris, that most iconic of, of capital city, and people started being afraid.
4: Isn't it extraordinary that this... Um you know, and I think this is why it's good to talk about it. That this thing that began with uh, male students wanting access to women's students' dormitories led to a general strike. Uh, how did that happen?
5: Well, it happened gradually. Also, I think it had been prepared in a way because, you know, the sixties and and the change in in French society. Something had to give. You know, something it 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 had been in the making for years, and. Politically, if we're just looking at politics here, it it was a reaction against authoritarian Gaullist power, but also the authoritarian Communist Party, which was extremely um, powerful also in trade unions. And it's important to to realize this because um, it was also an attempt for a third way, you know, always the same attempt. Yeah. Of a third way. Which, in the end, I mean, they, you know, the student protest didn't lead to much except for it was the symbol of the renewal and mutation, transformation of French society. But there were four workers. Um, there were real benefits because there were some uh, negotiations, the agreements of Grenelle, as we call it, les Accords de Grenelle, and a lot of progress, a lot of demands met by the government, which of course was quite fearful of Paris being Paris, of being you know another revolution, or, or at least it was an insurrection.
3: What was it about the student protests that resonated with the workers? How how did the workers come to join? with the students.
5: Well, there were some bridges. I mean, it's, it's interesting because obviously, when you look at the students, they all uh, wore not three piece suits, but suits right. uh, and ties. And um, a lot of them came from the bourgeoisie. And it didn't uh, feel, it didn't appear as a very organic marriage, you know, the workers from the Renault factories and, and the students. But at the same time, let us not forget what was happening in the, in the world. So you have the Maoist movements. And you you have an effervescence and incandescence in left politics. And some intellectuals, let us not forget it's Paris, let us not forget that some people were the go-between and and very effective ones. So you will remember Sartre going to the auto factories and, you know, haranguing workers and students. And, that, you know, it just happened.
4: I mean, these protests were so successful that de Gaulle, who was the president, at one point, fled to Germany for a number of hours, didn't he? And he, I think, he said to Pompidou, the prime minister, "You're on your own now. I'm, I'm finished." Now, that wasn't how it ended, but but you know, there was a sense that that it wasn't just talk of revolution, but that a revolution was coming. Is that right?
5: Well, yes. There there was a moment and as you say general de gaulle left for germany and, um, and people
3: didn't know he people didn't know no, where he was for a while
5: nobody knew he was yeah. for a few hours uh, if not for a few days it's still pretty murky there were some french army garnisons in germany and he obviously being a general being who he was he checked on the french army we we still don't know exactly what went on
4: and, and then there were elections eventually de gaulle came back from germany uh, and was persuaded n- not to just resign but to call call elections yes which he won by a landslide
5: which he did yes but then he was he he understood you know he understood the history and the tide of history and then although he comes out as victorious in a way um after may, may 68 and he changes prime minister in april 1969 he calls for a referendum on you know on the reform of the senate of french constitutional Question And he puts himself in the balance. He says, okay, well, if the no, if it's a no, then I will bow, you know, and leave the political scene. And it was 52% right. against it. Sounds familiar. Uh, yes. And and he left. I think he, he knew his time, you know, was, uh, was up and he, ha- he had to, to go because it was another France. And uh, I think he had served his country
3: so so in terms of the impact of the protests at the time then, it seems that it was sort of slightly delayed. How did it change France at the time, if at all?
5: Well, you know, I, I did interview quite a lot of what we call soixante-tuitards. Uh, who are today well-known intellectuals and philosophers. And I studied it. It was part of my PhD. I studied the semantics, uh, that is to say what words they were using to, um, to recollect. And it was quite an extraordinary moment of, I would say, poetry. The elation of it, the incandescence of it. But it was almost more uh, metaphysical, Uh, a sort of cultural outburst than really a political project. It was a moment of madness, which, I mean, Tocqueville, when he talks about that very French trait of, you know, revolution, insurrection during the 19th century, says, well, France being a rather, uh, at heart, conservative uh, country needs times of release you know when a sort of utopian negation of reality for a few weeks it imagines it's something else right. in order to continue life right yeah and so i think that's what that's what happened because when you when you think at all the slogans when you think about the cultural effervescence also the uh, the visual arts you know that we still look at today the creativity was extraordinary. Um I think it was you know a, a great moment for for women. It was a time for instance when uh, for a very long time a woman couldn't open a bank account without um her husband's approval. That stopped after 68. Also of course 68 led to to the legality of abortion which took place in a few years later, 74. And so a lot of things happened after Sixty-eight. But now, if you look at the political project, the problem is, you know, you, you can be very un- admiring of that poetic moment, uh, suspended time. But to say it's, it is forbidden to forbid, as it is one of the, the slogans in May 68, where does it leave the, uh, the citizens? You know, there, there is a childishness about May 68, which, which we actually see in French left politics today. Outrage replaced the you know argument in 68. And we still have that today. You know, this the sort of festive and violent protests that, that we have in the streets of France and Europe. I think that's a clear legacy of 68 for better and worse.
3: You, you mentioned before this need for an inherently conservative France to get this kind of thing out of its system. Do you get the sense that uh, a May 1968 could happen again or will happen again anytime soon?
5: Well, you know, everything's possible because it's a French thing to take to the streets. I don't. I can't recall how many times I did. It's it's natural. It's in our DNA. It's exactly the opposite as in in Britain. That is to say, in France, the legitimacy of the power is with the people since 1789. So we decide basically, and we only need to uh, show up in the streets. And if we are one. Two millions, then, you know, the law we are fighting is just put aside. In Britain, le- le- the uh, legitimacy of the power is with the parliament. That's why when one million demonstrated against the Iraq war, it didn't make any difference. And I'm quite interested to know whether the almost uh, million who d- demonstrated recently for uh, a second referendum on Brexit will have any influence. Agnes Poirier, thank you so much. You're welcome.
4: So to talk about protest, what it means uh, for today, we're joined by John Harris, Guardian columnist, uh, and Sarah Jaffe, who uh, written a book called Necessary Trouble about new social movements in the United States. And she is a Nation Institute fellow. Thanks so much for joining us, both of you.
6: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
4: This is a hard question to answer, but give us a general view on the power of of protest and the power of protest to change things? Because, and the reason I ask this is because lots of people are quite cynical. They say going on a march, all that, did it ever change anything? Uh, Probably not. I mean, I guess you both think that protest has a place. What 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 is its place?
2: So I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, obviously, since I wrote this book, but sort of since the book came out and since, you know, I live in Trumplandia, formerly known as the United States of America. But there have been a lot of big marches. And the question with the big march is sort of like, who's the target? Um, and what's your theory of change here? Because really, to be effective, protests have to disrupt something and you have to sort of have a target that is you can make them change so the women's march right after trump was elected was the biggest protest in united states history right something like between two and four million people out on marches around the country but and around the world but what was it asking for trump was not just going to like go away you know and by contrast the teacher strikes in west virginia recently. Right. That 55 counties of West Virginia, they shut down every public school and went on strike for a week. And what they were able to do was very much disrupt everybody's life. And they got a full Republican state legislature, state um, governor who had formerly been a Democrat, who had then converted to agree to their demands and to give every public employee in the state a raise. And so when you look at the sort of power of, of protest, the big marches, they feel great. They can be a lot of fun and they sort of demonstrate the size of your movement and your, you know, they, they're they often sort of internally focused though and they don't necessarily have a plan that is where is our power and how are we going to make change? Whereas something like a strike, something like direct action often has a more targeted idea of how we are going to make these people's lives hell until they give us what we want.
6: Interesting. What about you, John? What do you think? I agree that Particularly in the case of modern protests, and in the context of the fact we seem to have a march sort of every day now, yeah, because they're very they're very easy to organise in a way that they, you know when people like me were reliant on photocopiers, <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a very different gig. Yeah, and I think yeah. you know one the the anti-Iraq War march of two thousand and three, which I went on and found tremendously exciting. Uh, obviously, the, the the wheels of the war machine just carried on grinding on, and the war happened. I was a bit thrown that day because I kept seeing people with placards saying, not in my name, which has become a very modern slogan. And that to me is sort of narcissistic. That was the first stirrings of virtue signaling, really. In the (laughs) sense, it's not about you and what's happening in your name. It's about the prospect of all these Iraqi people being
2: killed. Right, exactly, exactly. You know,
6: whether or not people in Cheltenham or wherever you're from know it's not in your name is kind of by the by. So that kind, of, that kind of bothered me, and I think that tendency is still there in modern protest. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely.
6: I don't want to sound like I'm encouraging violence here, but I think if... Uh, but I am. No, I'm not. If, um, <laughs> if, uh, if, I think if a protest, in the classical sense of it, people on the street, is going to be effective, very often the state has to come out and be visible, and then you sort of see how it behaves. And if the state lashes out and starts being violent... That dramatises the sense that the state has run out of argument. And mm-hmm. Then all it can do is start breaking people's heads. And when that happens, the politics of particular issues can shift. It happened in it happened in 1968 in among the Democratic Convention when the National Guard and the cops sent in by Mayor Daly were very violent towards protesters outside there. And it was kind of... There was a sense in the American body politic of this. It sort of brought home the idea that the war was indefensible. All you could do to anyone who dissented from it was to beat them up. Right. I also think it was the case in... 89, as I recall, the so-called poll tax riot. 1990, yeah.
4: I think it was 1990,
6: yeah. Yeah, the fact that people were so angry about this very iniquitous tax that they then started to break things in central London. I'm not a great fan of breaking things in central London, but I think that was kind of part of the reason why that legislation was overturned.
4: Mm -hmm. Let's go back before 1968 then, John, and talk about Peterloo, because there is this new Mike Lee film about Peterloo and what happened there yeah. in 1819. And you've written about this. Tell us a bit about what happened at
6: Peterloo and and sort of why you think Peterloo is important. <laughs> well, Peterloo happens in 1819, as you said, which is right in the middle of a fascinating period of history uh, where you're, people are still uh, in the slipstream of the French Revolution. So there are government systems of authority all over Europe which are terrified that the same thing's going to happen to them as happened to the French aristocracy, and that applies in Britain, in England. In addition, you've got a great deal of social disruption because the Industrial Revolution is kicking in, uh, which is bringing people into cities. They're developing political consciousness. And the idea that common people, so to speak, do not have any say in the system of government is is in the midst of all that starting to look ridiculous. Uh, And people also are being very adversely affected by the Corn Laws, which uh, vastly inflate the price of food. You've got a great deal of dissent and protest about all that. And all of this really coheres around the demand that the working man, unfortunately, it's not the working man and woman at this point, but the working man should get the vote. And there's a a great sort of tumult, particularly in and around Manchester in the newly industrial northwest uh, of people who want what then is called reform. And it falls sort of two ways. There are those who think it can be achieved. This is a traditional sort of schism in left-wing politics. There are people who think it can be achieved constitutionally and peacefully. And there are people who believe in taking up arms. This is all in the film. Uh, now, at the the day of this great big meeting in St Peter's Fields, which is now uh, it's in central Manchester, there's a plaque now on the side of a building, which is the Radisson Hotel. You really get the radical protest vibes in the Radisson Hotel I just <laughs> i just tended to sit there watching George Osborne and Ed Balls get slightly drunk but because um, it's a party conference type of venue but anyway that's where it <laughs> happened it was a sort of vacant space in the middle of Manchester about 60,000 people men and women and children came from all over the northwest. there was no trains in those days so a lot of them walked miles uh, to hear orators God knows how it worked there was no amplification it was a bit like Life O'Brien Brian you know what did he just say I think he said Blessed are the cheesemakers and all that. But um, they came to hear Henry Hunt, who was this famous orator, acquired quite a celebrity, making the case for universal suffrage. The authorities were in a state of panic. They sent in, first of all, the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry on horseback, and then they sent in uh, hussars, proper soldiers with swords. 15 people were killed, at least 15 people were killed, and hundreds and hundreds were injured. Uh, And it's really the sort of formative moment in the struggle for the vote, uh, which took another... 50 or 60 years to even begin to happen, for government to begin to move on that, but it's the first really big watershed occasion. And did it make a difference, apart from the setting up of the Guardian? Uh, Well, just to clarify that point, so in the wake of this, because uh, national newspapers at that point were still sort of in their infancy, uh, the reform movement really needed an outlet, and because its focus was Manchester, the Manchester Guardian was set up. So that's that story, the paper that's still with us today. Did it make a difference? Yes, it did. But patience is part of protest. You don't always get what you want in the in the ensuing five minutes, which, again, you know, the modern world isn't very comfortable with. Yeah. Peterloo puts it on the agenda, and because, this goes back to what I said earlier, because the state so overreacted, I mean, you know, talk about overreaction, it killed people. It gives the the movement in favour of universal suffrage the moral high ground and it shows you that the state is politically bankrupt, right? About 15 years later, you get the first stirrings of Chartism. You get mass meetings all over the country in London, Birmingham, in the northwest of England. There's another burst of it around the 1832 Reform Act. In 1867, the government begins steps towards something approaching universal suffrage and extension of the vote, and then it finally happens in 1918 and in 1928 in the case of women. It takes a long time, but there are clear lines you can draw from all of those steps forward to protests after Peterloo and from them to Peterloo itself. It starts Mm -hmm. a chain reaction.
2: Yeah.
4: And then coming to the present day, Sarah, your book, Necessary Trouble, is about the movements which have, broadly speaking, Sort of happened since the financial yes. crisis, and you cover everything from Black Lives Matter to the Tea Party to Occupy, yeah. and, and you went around the country and talked to lots of the people involved. Tell us what conclusions you came to about about the 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 power and the importance of these of these different protests and movements.
2: Yeah, I don't think it'll surprise anybody in the UK to say that like the centre has collapsed in the last uh, ten years, and. You know, I was just doing a bunch of talks about the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis, and we're still very much dealing with that moment. And so, you know, we just had an election in my benighted country, and two of the things that I was watching the most closely in this election were Wisconsin, which is the thing that really started the anti-austerity fight back in my book. I talk about this extensively. And uh, where Governor Scott Walker, who started this whole thing by... Putting forward a law to take collective bargaining rights away from public sector workers, which nobody expected to have the kind of effect that it did, where at its peak you had a hundred thousand people in the Washington, uh, the Wisconsin Capitol building for weeks on end. And Scott Walker finally lost this election. Um, And I was up until 1 a.m. waiting to see if he was going to lose because it was very, very close. And I woke up in the morning to these emails from all these organizations in Wisconsin saying, we beat Scott Walker, we beat Scott Walker. And, you know, but in the book, I I talk about the recall attempt against Walker that failed. And so thinking about, again, these movements have to think historically and have patience. Um, I think that's a really important point because, you know, people still ask me, like, what what good was Occupy? What did Occupy do? And I'm like, just wait and watch and see where people are going and see where the threads are, are picked up. Um, and the other thing I was watching this election cycle was Florida, which, you know, once again, I'm having flashbacks to 2000 because there's about to be a recount in Florida and that just has not ended well for my country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> That was the famous Bush-Gore yes, election in 2000. Exactly.
2: So there's about to be a recount in Florida. But the guy who is within a whisker of being the next governor of Florida, Andrew Gillum, comes out of a movement at uh, universities in Florida around the police killing a young black man, which is, you know, he and the people that he worked with um, started this thing that then ended up giving groundwork to the people who did organizing around the death of Trayvon Martin which was the beginning of what we now know of as Black Lives Matter or the Movement for Black Lives. And one of the organizations that was founded out of that called the Dream Defenders, who I write about extensively in my book, they were really one of the driving forces this election, not only behind backing this guy, Andrew Gillum, but also backing a referendum that was on the ballot to re-enfranchise formerly incarcerated people and that gives the vote back to 1.4 million people. And that initiative passed easily. Right. And going back to that Florida recount in 2000, the thing that they just they used to justify purging the voter rolls in Florida in 2000 was this felon disenfranchisement law. So they were kicking people off the voter rolls who had names sort of similar to people who had been convicted of felonies. And so now... Because of all of this, 1.4 million people, including something like 40 percent of all black men in Florida, just got their right to vote back.
4: Which is incredibly consequential for the politics of the United States, not just the politics of Florida, because it will affect, affect, you know, presidential elections.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. This is where presidential elections live and die, is Florida. And so, yeah. And so when I look at that, and I don't think that the impact of protest movements is purely on elections, but when you see these changes happening, years later, right, the Dream Defenders were founded in 2012. They marched from Daytona to Sanford, Florida, which was where Trayvon Martin was killed and held a sit-in outside of the police station. And now, years later, they've just helped reenfranchise, you know, a million and a half people that's just incredibly consequential.
4: Is part of this, to, to defend the sort of peaceful marches, protests, and so on, is part of this that they change the political conversation? I mean, if you think about Occupy, lots of people are very sceptical about Occupy. Right, but, exactly. But the notion of the 99% is in the political yeah. lingo and, and and discourse, maybe in a way it wasn't before. If you think about Black Lives Matter... Yeah. The issue of police yeah. brutality, you know, Black Lives Matter came for lots of people out of the middle of, of, of nowhere. Um, yeah. In the, I think in the presidential election campaign of, of uh, or the primary campaign, um, yeah. 2015 into 2016, it has definitely changed the conversation. John, you spent some time at Occupy, did you?
6: I went twice. I went at either end. Yeah, I went when it was for, in London. I went to Occupy, I went to Occupy Oakland as well.
4: Oh,
2: well, Oakland was fun.
6: <laughs> and there was a little one in Berkeley and there was what... And there was one in Bristol, Bristol, England, not Bristol, Virginia. So, uh, I, yeah, I went, to, I went to a few of those things around that time, yeah.
4: And what do, you, what do you reckon then?
6: To some extent, you know, these things are full of paradoxes and tensions and contradictions. So I like the fact that it didn't have a formal programme of demands. This is right at the start when I went to uh, Paternoster Square near, near St Paul's Cathedral. I like the fact that it was just sort of there and it was kind of whatever you wanted it to be. And the, the conversations that I saw, some of them were dreadful.
2: <laughs> yes. That,
6: I mean, was a colleague of mine interviewed somebody there and said, look, what is it you want? And he went, oh, well, it's, you know, it's like the whole enchilada. And that was as much as he could say. <laughs> just thought, you're going to have to do better than that, really. I went to other ones about, you know, wage labour and the nature of the modern economy and all this that were pretty good, yeah. you know. And it was because people have a licence to talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Now, and this, I saw the same thing happen in Oakland, this little one in Berkeley, the one in Bristol, which actually was sort of 50% homeless people, which some people didn't like, but I thought it was great, yeah. actually, because suddenly there were TV cameras and people were sort of forced to talk to homeless yeah. people. That's what happened in Bristol. I mean, I think there's a grain of truth to the idea that it put the notion of sort of contesting what the likes of us would call neoliberalism on the agenda, but I think in the end, 99% of what did that was the fact that people's wages were stagnating and their public services were falling apart i'm not sure occupy is a big part of that story certainly in the uk
2: well i think what happens is occupy happens because people's wages are stagnating and people are whatever and the the reaction to it was so different because your average person could feel it right normally we're used to just like writing off a protest of there's a bunch of hippies in a park in new york city it's you know a normal saturday but The fact that everyday people, and to go back to your point about state violence, the Occupy really went viral when the cops pepper sprayed a girl in the face and this video was spread around the country. But, you know, you had people who never would have gone to the park and never would have camped out, but who heard, we are the 99% and said, well, yeah, we are the 99%. And we are getting screwed. And who's doing the screwing, right, is, well, Wall Street. And so, you know, but at the end, you're talking about these, and it's it was so interesting because it really became, going back to that state violence question, whether state violence helps or hurts, it became about trying to maintain these spaces when maybe that was actually not the most useful thing to do after several months, especially when it's getting to be winter and it was miserable and cold outside, and you just have the people who are committed to, like, keeping this space exactly what it is yeah. and not growing and not changing and not, you know adapting to something else. But now I'm looking at people who came out of Occupy and they are all over the place. Um, and they are in they are, you know, running campaigns for office. They are getting elected to office, but they're also organizing tenants unions and our labor organizers running things like um, the Fight for Fifteen campaigns. The people who came out of this and developed a class politics out of it still have that. And they are doing all sorts of things with it now that are not, you know, they're not holding a park.
6: I think in the UK... The bigger thing around that time, which de- has definitely had a really interesting political legacy, which I think overshadows, I think the young people and students' protests against tuition Absolutely. fees in 2010, tw- 2011, yeah. actually, have, have a much more enduring legacy because that sort of creates the generation then that swarmed into the Labour Party when Ed cut the membership rate to 20p or whatever. did. Um, <laughs> there you go. Swarmed in Look and, all, all, and all voted for Jeremy, for Jeremy Corbyn. And there, there are clear lines you can draw between that. And they are a very... I mean, some of them are unbearable, but uh, most, of them, most of them are a very, very politically, politically conscious, savvy, yeah. networked in, really capable, amazing load of people in a way that my generation never were. I mean, I went on demonstrations against the poll tax and they lasted about half an hour and we went home, you know.
4: So what's the really interesting thing, this? That, so it's what happens to the people who get involved in these things is as important as what the things achieve in themselves. Well,
2: they go in waves, you know. When I was writing my book, I was like, I can't just write a book about Occupy. I can't just write a book about Wisconsin. I actually have to write a book about all of this because it's actually all part of one context. And outside of the U.S., you look at Spain, you look at Greece, um, and you look at the student movement in 2010. And these are all things that created Occupy. One of the first people that I met at Occupy in New York was a woman from Spain who had come over, who had been part of the protests in the squares, and then came to New York to help them set up their occupation.
6: As the Chinese functionary Zhu Enlai, or whatever his name was, said, it's always too early to tell. (laughs) It really is. I mean, you have to really, really take the long view. So in the case of, um, I know this for a fact, that me and Ed were born about three days apart, so I can talk about him confidently as as being a member of the same generation. Not Jeff, though. No, Jeff's about 25. No, you you two are flower-powered children of the 60s. By three days, I was lucky enough, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, (laughs) Bad luck being born
2: in the 70s, Jeff. Well, I was born in 1980,
6: so... Oh, well, you've got it back. <laughs> yeah. Those CND marches, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, in the early 80s, now, I didn't go on those, but I saw them on TV, and they were huge by the standards of the time. There's amazing footage of E.P. Thompson, the historian addressing these huge crowds in Trafalgar Square. You know, The first political organisation I joined was CND. I'm still a member of it. Uh, and that was a, that's an absolutely formative political experience for me. It still sits in my head. It sort of conditions how I see the world in all sorts of ways. And it goes back to a protest movement, which really reared its head nearly 40 years ago. So that gives you some sense of it. And I know I'm not alone in that. The same, I mean, I'm sure you similarly, had remember those marches. Definitely.
4: I think I must have been dragged on one, actually, as my first march. Let me sort of ask you this question there's an uh, a writer called and i want to get her name right zeynep tufecki i hope that's pronouncing mm-hmm. it right who's written this book called twitter and tear gas the power and fragility of network protest and her sort of cases look the very ease of setting these things up is actually part of their problem Because when they were organising the bus boycott, it took months to organise. They sort of found Rosa Parks. They, you know, spent months planning it. I'm not trying to be a sort of, you know, kind of sound like a Luddite here. (laughs) But how much do you think part part of the problem is that somehow social media makes it easy and these looser organisations then mean that it doesn't have much of a lasting effect
6: i think that's sort of unarguable yeah and the summer we've just passed through in the uk is sort of testament to that in the sense that uh it was bookended by anti-brexit marches there was one in june and there was one the other week Mm -hmm. and there was that great big anti-trump march and you sort of lose count i think there was a a we love our nhs march uh, around the same time there are lots and lots and lots I think we might have reached the point now where there's a sort of banality about it, if you're not careful. It's just like, oh, it's just another march. And the slogans people write on their placards don't help. Because I used to walk with things that said smash the state and kill the bourgeoisie and all that. And now people write all these twee things like I'm so angry I don't know what to write or let's go and have a cup of tea and all this (laughs) stuff, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a curmudgeon, John. No,
2: it's funny.
6: I'm just not having that. That's. I'm sorry. That is just absolute rubbish, and it's it runs rampant, particularly through those Brexit marches. And I think it's just hopeless.
4: I went on the Trump march, and this woman had a, 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 a placard saying "Feed him to the corgis." I thought that was brilliant. That is brilliant. What's
6: that mean? That is brilliant. It's not brilliant. No, it's brilliant. It Should say "Smash economic nationalism." Or, you know what I mean? I want. I want a few <laughs> unwieldy. I what do we items? want, pre-distribution? <laughs> yeah, yeah, when do we pre- want it in the long I term? I unwieldy <laughs> political theory on those placards. I don't want this sort of hallmark <laughs> Hallmark greetings cards approach. It's
2: not It's not on. You know, my favourite sign during Occupy was a guy who just had it. It was on a canvas. He was, like, clearly an art student. And his sign just said, shit is fucked up and bullshit.
4: You wouldn't get that on a hallmark greeting card.
2: It was such a, like, perfect thing for the Occupy moment. Um... But on the social media question, I think it's interesting because as I absolutely agree that like we have a march every day and they sort of are pulled together and it's very easy to get people to sort of come out for certain things. But the hard thing is still building organization slowly. The thing that's happening right now in the U.S. is you have, you know, now 55,000 people who have joined the Democratic Socialists of America who have never done politics in a sustained way before all they have done is shown up to a march right and so you have just this intense like inability to sort of argue politically and i find it you know fascinating and frustrating and and so many things to watch it happen but like you we do have to learn and sort of exercise this political muscle that is more than just like going on a march with your friends and then you go to brunch
6: oh that's interesting this is the pablo iglesias question to to uh To refer to the leader of Podemos. What happens when everyone goes home? That's a that's a cliche in the in the sort of uh, in the the rhetoric of Pablo Iglesias but it's the sort of central question of all of this.
4: Right. But what about the sort of Julio Iglesias (laughs) question? No I I just sort of wanted to make a cheap joke but but what but but just I I thought what Sarah was getting at was the people who get alienated by protest because because I, I thought what you were sort of saying a bit Sarah was what about persuasion?
2: Well, there's that, right? There is the fact that I, I don't worry too much about the people who get alienated by protests because you know, during the 60s, the sit-ins and the marches and the Martin Luther King was only liked by something like 20% of white people. So you don't have to be popular to win. That's not how this works. In fact, often it doesn't work that way because Trump is very unpopular and he is still in charge.
4: But you have to be popular to beat Trump. You have you? to have
2: power to beat Trump and you have to figure out what that is. And sometimes it will, I mean, hopefully, it will be enough to vote him out in 2020. And in terms of winning power in other ways, like I bring up the West Virginia teachers' strike again, because, again, they were in a state with a fully Republican state legislature, Republican governor, and they managed to go on strike, and they managed to do a good enough job of organizing and messaging their strike that they got popular support, that they had parents and students who were showing up on the picket lines with them and that they brought, you know, they, they it's such a cliche to say they brought this Republican legislature to its knees, but, you know, they got their demands met. And they got their demands met because they figured out how where the leverage was.
6: I don't want to misinterpret the argument here, but, but it seems to me just necessarily true that progressive advances happen When the progressive, or if you want to be crude about it, the kind of left-wing side of politics, extends its reach, builds what some people call hegemony, takes the idea of, it's more than popularity, it's consent about marshalling coalitions behind you and all of that stuff. And the history of progressive politics and the left is littered with heroic failures that very often failed because those points were overlooked, right?
4: Is protest problematic for that or not? In I want view? to go back
6: to Peterloo here because Peterloo is an object lesson in this. I mentioned earlier that, broadly speaking, there were two factions within the people who were pushing for universal suffrage. There were people who wanted to take up arms and stage insurrections. There's a thing called the Pentridge Rising, which happens in Derbyshire around this period, which is indicative of that, Right. And there were other people who took a more sort of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King approach and said, no, we're constitutionalists. This has to be peaceful. And that allowed them to keep the moral high ground. It made the state look awful. And over time, that, that drama unfolded, right? So I think that's really, really important. And similarly, in 68, um there were parts of the left that are very entertaining to read about, like the yippies who were led by Abbie Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and all. Now, I think in the end, they probably alienated more people than they attracted. Let me ask
4: a different question, which is we've been talking about lefty uh, protests. What about righty sort protest. of non-lefty pro- r- righty yeah. protests? Righty so, protests. So you talk in your book, Sarah, about the Tea Party. I do. John, you'll remember the Countryside Alliance um, march. <laughs> just, just say something...
2: Say, say
6: something What, is, a bit what about... is the Countryside Alliance March? Oh, there in lies the a story. I, I'm, I'm all right with it. Tell me I'm about all right this. with the Countryside Alliance March. I don't, I'm not that sort of sneery about it. They had a right to a voice. D- what is it? Uh, the Labour government, because the, uh, before Ed was involved uh, in 1997 onwards, their one little fig leaf of radical politics, it could be argued, they'd abandoned the class struggle and all that. But the way that they threw a bit of red meat to lefties was by saying we're going to ban fox hunting which they packaged as a sort of act of class war. So never mind the fact they were privatising everything and getting in bed with George Bush, the fact that a few aristos couldn't <laughs> couldn't chase foxes around anymore was meant to convince us that they were true <laughs> radicals. Okay, And when they did this, quite, yes. quite understandably, although I don't like fox hunting, I'm a lifelong vegetarian and I wouldn't do it myself, a lot of people in the countryside got very, very annoyed about it and it became the focus for a protest movement really about as they presented it, the sort of fragility of, of life in the countryside because blacksmiths were going out of business, pubs were closing down, villages were becoming uh, the, the uh, focus for second homes and were, and were kind of dead. There was a lot of dismay about the state of the countryside. Now, I wouldn't have gone on that march. The people on it were not really my cup of tea, but I thought it was, just, it was another example of democracy working relatively well. And actually, it didn't work because foxes, I can see some from the window here in Somerset, are still gallivanting around perfectly <laughs> happily. <laughs> Talk about
4: the Tea Party, because they're in your yeah. book, the Tea yeah. Party, Sarah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, what happens in 2008 is Barack Obama gets elected as capitalism is collapsing around the world. And so the left in this country, I'm actually visiting a friend who was working on a banks campaign during that time and was kind of trying to convince the labor movement to get behind a massive campaign to like challenge the power of Wall Street at this moment where it had clearly collapsed the global economy. And the left or sort of the center left institutions, I will say, um, really got behind Obama and just said, we're going to wait and see, we're going to push for him to do, you know, essentially what he's going to do. And so there was little pressure from his left And instead, the first protests that you get around the financial crisis are from the right. They're from the Tea Party. They're from you know, and it was started by this guy Rick Santelli, who's a CNBC you know business commentator who is on TV at the Chicago Board of Trade, ranting about how all these capitalists are going to go throw some mortgage-backed securities in the lake. And it was very confused, but it was about the losers' mortgages. We don't want to subsidize the losers' mortgages because there was this very brief period of talking about actually doing something about people who are about to lose their homes, which never really happened. And so you get people who are already sort of libertarian-leaning conservatives who are kind of mad about George W. Bush because, you know, he spent a ton of money invading Iraq.
4: Sorry to interrupt. It changed the politics of the Republican Party substantially, didn't it? Because it elected l- lots of people in primaries.
2: I don't actually know if that's true. Um, what it did was it made... Um, so there are sort of two tea parties, right? There was the, the actual grassroots people who were absolutely real and were having meetings and community organizing um, over and over and over again. And then there were the consultants. There's a guy named Dick Army, which is the greatest name in the world because it's very accurate, um, who is a longtime <laughs> Republican Party hack. Dick, A R A R
6: M E Y. but still. we got to pause for thought and think hard about a guy called Dick Army. That's really quite something <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dick Carney who moves, who sees the opportunity of the Tea Party, and he moves in and uses the skills that he has had for however long to run like direct mail campaigns and to to organize sort of right-wing donors to back this thing and say, like, this could be great for us. We can push the politics that we've always pushed, which are, you know, no taxes for rich people and screw the poor and deregulate everything and ban labour unions.
3: So just to finish, we usually do a Jeffocracy question, which is a, a, a utopia with me installed as a benign dictator, but I don't quite feel that's the... Uh... We're all going to be protesting against you, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't like the thought of that. So we'll, we'll put that to one side and just ask... What is the advice for our listeners who want to get involved in protest?
6: Well, think hard about what, what the whole thing looks like, particularly to the sort of people who are going to glimpse it from either side of the road. Uh, I would say brand it really well. Have a good set of slogans. Have, a, If you can, have a good title for it all, okay? So uh, I don't necessarily agree with their politics, but the fact there's something called the Stop the War Coalition, well, I understand what that is. It's a good name. I mean, the Tea Party, for all their awfulness, is a pretty effective name for a movement in the sense that it gives a sense that it's kind of rooted in history and all of that. We are the 99% is is absolutely, as you said earlier, it's an absolutely brilliant slogan. So I think that needs thinking about. And then the other thing is, you know, keep the email addresses and the Twitter handles and create networks and keep them going. Because... The Iraq war is sort of a case in point. I lived in London at the time and the first Iraq war march, the really big one, was a million people. And then they had, they had another one 6 weeks later and that was about 50,000 people and there was another one a month later and it was about 20,000 people and by the end there was effectively there was me and some guy and George Galloway that was kind of it really. <laughs> so that's so you have to somehow create momentum and understand that although the street and visibility and classical protest, you know, is essential, Politics is about much more than that, and you should use those things as triggers and catalysts, but the real work probably lies elsewhere. Yeah.
4: But, but John, it can also be local. I mean, it can also be about the Tesco and Froom.
6: That was the last protest movement I was involved with. We didn't have marches. This is in the days when supermarkets were growing like Topsy... Around the country, which we don't live in that world anymore, but uh, we were threatened with one which we knew would kill the town centre. We organised big meetings and petitions and uh, we had people write into the local council as part of the planning hearing and all that. And we created a hell of a lot of noise to the point we actually organised nas- the first and only national anti-supermarket conference. And people came from all over the country. Because they had exactly the same problem that Tesco and Sainsbury's and Waitrose and whoever wanted to come and sort of kill their town. So we networked people in and that network endured. This was all in 2012 and it was a great thing to have been involved with. And it worked. In this, I mean, uh, the bigger favour was done to us by the fact the bottom dropped out of supermarkets. That's what really did it. But Tesco announced that they weren't going to open in Froome. We spent the 50 quid that was left in the kitty on beer and that was the end of that. <laughs> Anyone listening who donated, we deserve the beer. I'm sure you'll agree.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, you need a beer. Everybody needs to keep going. So I would say I, I always want to talk about power. But the real question is, who is your target? What are you aiming to accomplish? What is the leverage that you have? It might be public opinion. It might not be public opinion. And think really hard about what your strategy is is beyond we are mad and we want to go have a march to show that we are mad because often the people you are marching against do not care if you're mad. I want to just echo right you have to keep it going afterwards because it's not enough to have one protest it might not be enough to have 20 protests it might not be enough to have 300 protests but you have to keep building.
4: Okay Sarah and John thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So look I'm looking forward to the protests come the Jeffocracy. I've got lots of tips about how to organise the sort of mass movement against the Jeffocracy. People aren't going to need to protest in a Jeffocracy, Ed. You think there's going to be such a utopia that nobody's going to want to protest? That's my intention,
3: yeah. That's a noble intention. Now, what what did you think about this? The the thing that I found very encouraging was this idea that you can't just judge a protest in its immediate aftermath.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think we concentrated on the, you know, the big protests that people will know about. I sort of can't help thinking, particularly this week, I mean, there's been two examples which which are, which are have had an effect. One, the Google walkout. Ostensible cause of it was somebody who got a massive payout despite being accused of sexual harassment. And I think it's had some effect. And then secondly, this weird story about how something that amazon owns which is a Books, which sells second-hand books had decided to cut off a number of countries from being able to buy these books and basically these booksellers launched a boycott and it did have an effect now okay this is stretching the idea of protest quite a long way but i think the first thing is we think of it in a macro sense but it can be micro or macro and the second thing is i suppose protest on its own is not going to be enough you know I'm really struck by the sort of sense of in the era of networks and Twitter and all that, it makes it even more important that you have a sort of organisation behind it that's actually doing stuff,
1: not just protesting.
2: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Milibands and Jeff Lloyd.
4: If you've got thoughts on protest and what you've heard us discussing today, please do email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast, also on Instagram uh, at cheerfulpodcast, and also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. Now, I would say, sweeping up um, from last week uh, on uh, quantitative easing we got lots of uh responses on this two emails in particular at uh, first at uh, jamie barker Ed, Jeff and the team couldn't help but notice that this week's episode was what I suggested in my email. Even the exact guests you had on and yet no shout out or even a reply. Or perhaps a very happy coincidence for the first time I've emailed into a program. Keep up the good work. I look forward to the next episode. Although I don't think I'll be suggesting any more ideas. Now, Jamie, so I think we owe you, we do owe you a bit of an apology uh, because you did send us an email in October suggesting that we have Fran Boyd from Positive Money on. I can't quite remember whether it was Um, sort of osmosis or just sort of inspired uh, great minds thinking alike that we decided to have Frambois on but thank you for your uh, suggestion Uh, and hope you enjoyed the episode and also I think while we're worried about shout outs we should do a shout out to Alex McGowan because he suggested in May 2018 that we uh, do an episode on QE, and he's emailed us in. Great QE episode. I take it all back. Presumably that's because he said something <laughs> disobliging in the May email. Uh, apart from the bit about Jeff not being a millennial, there's apparently something called a zenial that you might just qualify for, though. So we should now rename you a Zennial.
3: Yeah, not even borderline. Not even borderline. Okay. Squarely a zenial.
4: Well, I've looked up zenial, Jeff. Here are eight signs that you might be a, a zenial. Played Oregon Trail. I don't know what that is.
3: No, I don't know what that is. Use
4: dial-up internet. Yes. Yes. Grew up without social media. Yes. Yes. But, I mean, that you could be 102
3: and you grew up <laughs> without right. social media. Technicality. Get on with it.
4: Remember AOL? Yes. Made mixtapes. Yes. Didn't own a cell phone.
3: Yes. Yeah.
4: Used a disc man. Yes. Loved new kids on the block.
3: No. But I think still, you know, overwhelmingly... <laughs> Majority verdict. Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. Oh, good to know. I can give myself a label. This comes from Sarah Cook, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I don't normally write to things like this. <laughs> I'm not sure what she means by that. Um, but I'm going to give it a go. I've... Recently, listened to your episode on education and bringing more emphasis back to the arts, and I couldn't agree more. As a postdoc working in science in the US, uh, science and arts are not mutually exclusive, and creativity is important for scientific thinking. However, this isn't why I'm writing. I moved from the UK to the USA nearly four years ago for my job, and one thing I have found amazing about the US is the emphasis... Of learning how the government works in their education system, everyone in school is taught how a law is made, how the government is made of three branches, how voting works, etc. It's made me realise that my own knowledge of the British system is lacking. She goes on to say that some of her colleagues asked her about it, and she had to go to a BuzzFeed article to uh, to look up even stuff like what does the Queen do, what does the House of Lords do, uh, why don't we elect the Lords, how's the law passed, etc., etc. Um, she says this seems like a fundamental thing lacking in our education system of course like jeff i am a millennial well we've just it turns out now i'm a zennial but borderline um, zennial yeah yeah uh so, so it may be such a topic is now covered in schools um i don't know that it is i mean do you feel like your boys have any sense of this this stuff mm,
4: no I, I think it's a good point uh, I think in the Jeffocracy, everyone would have citizenship education, wouldn't they?
2: Email us, reasons at com. Follow us on Twitter, at cheerfulpodcast. Or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast.
4: Well, we're in the outro. Look, I'd like to make an offer to you. I, I think next time, next time in Paris, it should be our sort of romantic weekend.
3: I definitely think so. You and me on a pleasure cruise down the Seine. Yeah, they've got some fantastic leisure centres <laughs> All right, all right. What's French for leisure centre? Centre de loisirs. Wow. That uh, that O-level French of yours really, yep. you know, uh, really encompassed some stuff you wouldn't expect. I'll see you at the Centre de Loisier. Do you want to thank Agnes? Yeah, she was here with me, uh, Agnes Poirier. And
4: I'd like to thank John Harris and Sarah Jaffe, who joined
3: us from Froom and from Washington. Respectively, and uh, Emma Corsham produced our podcast. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our ident. Uh, who else we got? Ed Seed wrote the music. And the Emily artwork. Power yeah. to the People! <laughs> so he's been a left bank intellectual. He's been left back at home. And these have been. Raison d'être de bon humeur.